adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. I'm your host, Christian Rodriguez, and I'm with none other than Adam Myers. <laughs> He's killing himself, folks. He's I'm killing himself. Killing He's oh, man. Knocking, not, knocking him out. I'm not, <laughs> not quitting my day job. Uh, definitely not. So uh, do you like to travel? I do like to travel. Sweet. Yeah. I have a list of countries and cities and just places that I want to go to before, you know, before I kick the bucket, as they say. Is, uh, is, is Pyongyang on there? It is not. In fact, I'm actually glad that you asked that because, you know, I watched this interesting documentary one time where Dennis Rodman actually ended up going into Pyongyang and he basically was singing the praises of, I believe it was Kim Jong-un. They're, they're boys. I know they're boys. It's crazy, right? And I have nothing against Dennis Rodman. I'm a big fan of, you know, the 90 Chicago Bulls team, you know. I actually thought at one point he had a, a pretty good chance of being the ambassador in North Korea. I could see that for some reason. I can really see that. So, so yeah. So today, for those of you listening, again, welcome back to another episode of Adversary Universe podcast. So yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, North Korea. So referred to as traditionally like the Hermit Kingdom due to its uh, self-imposed isolation. North Korea has evolved from this nation that has been focused solely on nuclear threats to this major player in the digital world of cybersecurity or cyber warfare, more importantly. Over the past 10 years alone, North Korea has focused their attention on the financial sector and critical infrastructure. And even Hollywood studios have been you know, impacted and a testament to the regime's relentless pursuit of power and influence on the global stage. You've seen major news outlets like CNN and BBC and the New York Times providing extensive coverage over the cyber exploits of North Korea, highlighting not only its capacity to inflict digital harm, but also the nation's ability to adapt and evolve in the face of global sanctions and isolation. So we here at CrowdStrike have been following a lot of the activity coming out of North Korea for some time. We've been tracking their tradecraft, the evolution that we've seen on their cyber abilities underlines a shift in the paradigm of you know global security concerns where they've demonstrated these geopolitical threats are no longer limited to this physical realm. There's a lot of motivations we're gonna to cover today. Adam, I know this is actually a very big topic for you in terms of your familiarity with what's happening over in Pyongyang. And I'm sure that we have a lot of content to cover. And so tell me a little bit about your, your take, right, on what's going on over there with Mr. Kim Jong-un and some of the most recent activities and, and, and campaigns that we're tracking. Yeah, they've, they've been in the news a bit. In fact, a lot of folks will remember that we had identified a supply chain attack that we tie back to the North Korean threat actors. I think what that's reflective of is that they've really up-leveled their capabilities and have been thinking, you know, how can they expand their operations? And, you know, I think we'll roll back the clock in a minute to kind of the origin story here of some of the threats we track out of North Korea. But in recent months, even years, if you will, their focus has been more on financial targeting, where they're generating revenue for the regime by targeting cryptocurrency. They're targeting, they were very involved in targeting things related to NFT. They were, I think, some of the most prolific users and understanders of NFT and, and DAOs and all of the various things that were kind of bubbling up over the last year in the crypto blockchain world. And they also target 
regular kind of, I guess, legacy financial institutions, sure. right? They, you know, tr- traditional fiat currency. And they also have, and a lot of people don't know this, they've also been doing a little industrial espionage trying to Ooh, uh, interesting. take technology and improve the experience for the North Koreans. You know, there's a whole program that they have in place that that's tied to that. And of course they conduct espionage and they are very interested in targeting South Korea. And they also have that disruptive, destructive capability that they can bring to bear as they like. Yeah. I know that they have been responsible for some major ransomware campaigns over the course of the past. I mean, even when I first started working here at Crush, like almost a decade ago, so nine years, a little over nine years pushing nine years. I'm getting old. I know that one of the major attacks we saw attributed to North Korea was around the Sony hack, right? Yep. The ransomware attack that, that impacted all these systems. And well, that I think wasn't that was, ransomware. It's, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you bring this up because that wasn't ransomware. In fact, what if you remember the timing, this was November 2014. And that was right around the time that there was a big movie coming out with Seth Rogen. Oh, that's right. And the North Koreans had expressed their displeasure with that movie way, way, way back in September of 2014. And they said that they would consider a movie portraying the assassination of their leader as a act of war. Mm, That's right. And, you know, so much to unpack in that, that incident, because they also created this fake narrative, this disingenuous hacktivist persona, the guardians of peace who claimed responsibility for the the attack on the motion picture company. And they also benefited from a lot of misinformation where various security researchers were trying to claim it was a malicious insider. So there was a whole mess going on in that time frame related to that intrusion and disruptive attack. So, okay. So you're saying it wasn't ransomware necessarily. They were just, it was, the purpose of it it was destruction. It was just destructive. Exactly. It was also kind of interesting because they, if you recall, they leaked some content. They leaked emails and embarrassed right. some of the, the executives, uh, the executives right. there. They, yeah. I think they also released some of the movies perhaps that were not released yet. And if you recall, that movie never made it into the movie theater. It went, it, they basically released it, a limited it for free. showing. Yeah, it was a limited showing and then they just gave it to, to everyone for free, which is yeah. even uh, a much better marketing campaign in the grand scheme of things. Right. right. And I think yeah. it probably further infuriated the North Koreans because, yeah. you know, that, that whole cult of personality around the Kim family and the Kim dynasty is something that they take seriously. And so yeah. for, for Seth Rogen to come out with a movie where they're jokingly trying to take out Kim Jong-un, I don't think that they saw the humor in that put it that way. I'm sure they were subtly offended. So. And, you know, that was a period of time when disruptive, destructive attacks were not uncommon related to North Korea or the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as we also call it. And, you know, there were attacks where they conducted wiper and disruptive attacks against the Blue House, which is South Korea's equivalent to the White House. They conducted attacks against the energy industry there as well, disruptive, destructive attacks. And that was kind of really that time period of 2009 to probably 2015, where we saw a lot of those disruptive, destructive attacks occurring. And then they started pivoting into financial attacks. And this coincided with increased sanctions and really ramping up the maximum pressure strategy. And when North Korea was disconnected from SWIFT, the uh, global financial network that many countries leverage, they 
started really ramping up their revenue generation activity because they needed to make money to pay for a number of things. There's this concept uh, they call it, some people call it the third floor or the third office, which is a specific organization within the North Korean government that is responsible for generating revenue and for making sure that the, the Kim family is taken care of in terms of money as well. And so North Korea is not just active in cyber espionage and cyber theft. They're also involved in lots of other kind of nefarious activities, ranging from human trafficking, wow. counterfeiting, drug production, things like I've heard methamphetamine yep, and even perhaps fentanyl, which is oh, certainly wow. having a negative impact here in the U.S., yeah, we're seeing it. Yeah, we're seeing it a lot. And yeah. uh, one of their their big exports is uh, authoritarian statues as well. And so they also do a lot of illegal. They're constrained by sanctions, but they'll actually turn off the transponders on their ships and start to kind of try to move coal and things like that to generate oh, revenue. Wow. So they have lots of hustles, and they're all kind of constrained within that third floor. And cyber cyber is used in that regard. I remember really early on some of the earliest activity that we were tracking related to North Korea, we started seeing that the same tools that they were using for espionage, they would occasionally use for fraudulent ad network activities. So they were even doing some revenue generation back in the 2011, 2012, 13 timeframe. But that seemed to us to be really kind of self funding for their own operations. In other words, so, so acting as an ad network to fuel advertising revenue through that channel. Yeah. Fraudulent advertisements. Right. And so that likely, you know, was how they were funding some of their own operations. Oh, wow. Very interesting. So there's all these sanctions around North Korea. They say, hey, we're just going to work our way through these various cracks. We're talking about, again, advertisement revenue. We're talking about commodities revenues through a variety of very nefarious ways to stay under the radar in both the figurative and literal sense. And they are just you know, trying to pump as much money back into their economy or where is that money going exactly? No, not to the economy. The, the economy is very heavily controlled by the state. But, you know, think about funding for weapons, funding for they have a variety of kind of government initiatives, which we'll get into. But, yeah, they want to fund their weapons programs and they want to you know be able to kind of keep the Kim family comfortable and, and some of the elites comfortable. And, you know, this, the other thing that they've been doing even back to the, you know, late 2000s was they were hacking video games and stealing things in those massive multiplayer online games in order to generate revenue as well. Oh, really? Interesting. So they're hijacking like upgrades, I'm assuming, and just selling it on like an underground forum. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, they were selling them to other gamers. Basically, almost like a pre-NFT era where... The NFTs were kind of built into those applications, right? Those games, yeah. those platforms. Interesting. Okay, so we're talking about the kind of the evolution of, of kind of where they started very destructive. They've expanded into the financial sectors. They're starting to get a little bolder rather in their strategy and their cyber warfare strategy, you know, with the intention of not only being destructive, but now there's a very big financial incentive for them to circumvent sanctions and kind of work through those sanctions that have been put on them. You know, what does that mean for their evolution of skill set, right? Because we've, you know, we've been tracking them under the nomenclature of Kalima. Do you want to quickly talk about what that means and how we're tracking that? And then we walk through you know, their evolution of skills. Yeah. So yeah. the Chalima is an animal. It's a mythical creature that has significance for North Korea. And it is effectively a, a magical flying horse type 
thing. And it like is a peg- yeah, like a Pegasus. And it's it's yeah. heavily represented in their culture and their their kind of origin story. And so that's where we chose the name from for tracking North Korean threat actors. Now it's kind of interesting because many years ago there was this this, I don't know, maybe an organization. It was a collective of researchers and they created this whole concept of this thing that they call Lazarus, which was kind of a catch-all for all North Korean threat activity. And this was 2013, probably 2014 that that came out. In fact, the company that released that report doesn't even exist anymore to my knowledge. And that kind of created a bit of a, a kerfuffle because, you know, at CrowdStrike, we track five different threat actors with North Korea, Labyrinth Chilima, Stardust Chilima, Ricochet Chilima, Silent Chilima, and Velvet Chilima. And let me ask, Christian, do you know what the common thread between those? I believe they are all an extension of the DPRK, but I could be. They are all, yes, DPRK, but they are all, the naming came from David Bowie, for some reason, I, I don't even remember why, but really? yeah, but a labyrinth, he was in the labyrinth. And if you look at the oh, that's right. adversary image right. for labyrinth, it kind of has a David Bowie look to it. Stardust, Iggy Stardust. Oh my goodness. You're so right. I've been staring at these names for almost a decade and I didn't even realize that it's all tied to David Bowie. Auto-tune. All right. Sorry. All right. sorry. I don't know. I Smash that away. like button and don't forget to Smash subscribe. Don't forget like subscribe. Christian's <laughs> auto tuning. I want some feedback, by the way, folks. I, I yeah. would do it, but I don't have an auto tune. <laughs> so you'll all be spared that uh, my it. indignity there. Yeah. So, okay, so, yeah. So, so the Chalima name or, you know, comes from that kind of concept in, in the North Korean story, uh, if you will. The mm-hmm. actors are all kind of related to the Reconnaissance Bureau General, which mm-hmm. is under the military and ultimately under Kim Jong-un's power. And the RGB is responsible for all of their intelligence operations and things of that nature. And underneath that, there are various bureaus and different elements that are tied to cyber operations. And cyber has been something that North Korea has invested in for a very long time. I think Kim Jong-un, even when his father was still in power, recognized the asymmetric capabilities of cyber and was a big proponent of pushing for that because they needed to have asymmetric capabilities given, you know, they were relatively small and had very few friends in the world. And so having that asymmetric capability, having cyber as a tool is something that they recognized and have been investing in. And when I talk to people about cyber jobs and what we need to do to kind of develop the cyber workforce, I actually point to North Korea because in North Korea, they start at the junior high school level looking for and identifying candidates who have good math or other types of backgrounds that are going to be of utility in in that domain. And they develop them. And cyber operators, by all accounts, have a higher quality of life than many people in North Korea. They're well taken care of because they play an important role for the regime and for the government and the military. And so they're they're treated appropriately or well. Wow. Okay. So while we don't necessarily want to use nefarious, you know, adversary campaigns as as a driver behind spreading the good word of why you should get into cybersecurity, clearly there's a big value both on the defender and offender side, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, look, I mean, I think that at the core, it's we should be pushing STEM into the junior high schools and we should be no, looking agreed. for yeah. talent at, at a much lower level because that doesn't help us with today's cyber workforce problem. But I think, you know, as a side, I'll hop up on my soapbox real quick and say that, you know, I think doing this at the junior high school level makes sense and uh, will pay off in the future. 
No, I agree with that. You know, I said, what's interesting is my son is in, he's a 10th grader and his high school actually has a cyber program, a cybersecurity program, which I thought is fascinating. And I'll probably go over there and be a guest speaker at some point. But my son, on the other hand, has zero desire to get into cybersecurity. So he wants to get into the medical field, which, you know what, hats off to the kid, you know, great grades. And, you know, he has a very specific passion that he's chasing. But I thought it was refreshing to see that the program is open to even freshmen. All right. So, yeah, I was yeah. talking to my son's teacher and he's in elementary school. And I mentioned, you know, hey, if you want somebody to come speak about cybersecurity and tell the kids about passwords and some of the things that they need to be thinking about to stay safe online. And she said that she would take me up on that because this is the age where they start figuring out each other's passwords and getting into all, you know, all all the kids have different devices and stuff. So I was, oh, okay. And I love at CrowdStrike, we do take your child to work day. And I love scaring them straight with with my cyber antics and showing them videos from, you know, the Ukrainian police arresting botnet operators and stuff like that. They love that. And every single kid goes home to their parents and says, I want to do that. Okay, so evolution. Now, there's skill sets. They're grabbing these these kids. Basically, they're kind of walking them down this path of, you know, uh, a very offensive security strategy. These kids are coming out of school. They're working for the regime. They are now contributing to their growing skill set. What would you say is the actual, well, how good or, or, or how sophisticated have they become? Let's just actually use, a, in terms of a, of a timing point, let's use the Sony attack as kind of that one point of the world witnessing their ability to run some type of cyber warfare campaign versus where they are now. Is it, have they really been stepping it up, especially in comparison to some of the other adversaries we, we've been covering on the podcast so far? So think about, you know, nation state activity coming out of China. Where do they stack rank? I think they're one of the top. And I think that catches a lot of people by surprise because, you know, you started off calling them the hermit kingdom earlier. And I think that they are in North Korea is not, you know, everybody assumes that they have no technology and that they, you know, they don't. And by all accounts, you know, there's not a lot of reliable power, for example, across North Korea. I think the last time I looked, it was something like 30 percent of the country had reliable power. And, you know, they've been struggling along the way. But and we'll come I'll come back to this in a second. But I think that they are one of the more advanced cyber actors out there. And we've seen them deploying tooling on everything from Mac, Windows. We saw them do a a cross-platform supply chain attack. I've seen them deploy things onto hundreds, uh, which is for most of our listeners, probably uh, you'll have to Google that, but it's (laughs) it's an older (laughs) computer platform. We've seen them, you know, really develop and field advanced capabilities. And I think that the misconception that they are the hermit kingdom and that they're backwards is absolutely wrong. They are some of the most advanced cyber operators out there. Yeah, I've seen, I've been reading a lot of the Intel reports, especially when it comes to Labyrinth Kalima. And I know we're going to spend a little time talking about them, but when you see the, you know, their weaponization strategy and, you know, everything from the delivery mechanisms that they include, they are relentless, right? in their attacks. And I would love, I know we're going to cover a little more about what Labyrinth Kalima has been doing over the past several years. More importantly, their most recent activity just this year. But yeah, to echo your sentiment, I, I definitely see a lot of sophistication. And it's interesting. I know you get to see a lot more activity happening on the back end with the CAO team. That's our counter adversary operations team. That's right. <laughs> so again, more in terms of a colloquial reference, right? As a hermit kingdom, they are very advanced. You're saying, right? They're very advanced. They have become this sophisticated cyber warfare monster, if you will. They're also publicly showing their alignment, right? With the likes of Russia 
and other countries that basically, you know, share similar interests. And I'm sure that there's a lot of economic or not, again, not, not even economic, but in terms of them adding more funds to their weapons program, I see that they've, you know, aligned with Russia. They're in talks with the likes of China, from my understanding. So what, what does that look like in terms of how far reaching they've become? You know, you know, they've, I think they've always been closely aligned with, and they've done a pretty good job, I think, of playing between China and uh, the former Soviet Union and now Russia. We've seen you know, North Korea supporting the Russian activity in Ukraine, sending artillery and things up to the Russians, allegedly. They've had various periods of time where China's kind of been their protector in terms of the global community, when there was a lot of pressure even being put on China with regards to North Korea. So, you know, they've, that's kind of their sweet spot is over there. And then I think, you know, some of the other countries that we don't really have a lot to do with, like Iran and stuff, they all kind of, you know, have ties together. But North Korea has embassies in different places. A lot of folks will remember when Kim Jong-un's stepbrother was killed with a VX nerve agent being rubbed in his face in an airport. And, you know, so they have long reach. This is another thing that a lot of people don't really notice is that a lot of their cyber operations are not launched out of Pyongyang necessarily. They have these kind of forward deployed elements within various embassies and different organizations in places like China. And we've seen things that they've been able to kind of leverage those forward deployed folks to then be kind of the cyber operators. And then, you know, the other thing with why they've targeted cryptocurrency so heavily is that, you know, given sanctions, it's difficult to kind of do things with cash and and traditional kind of fiat currency. And cryptocurrency is is something that they can more effectively leverage, I think, for some of the things that they'd like to purchase. And, you know, we've seen reports where they're buying kind of crane trucks from Africa and then refitting them to be launch vehicles for weapons platforms and things like that. So, yeah, there's, you know, they're able to kind of wheel and deal with a cryptocurrency. Oh, wow. So, you know, if you look at who they've targeted historically versus who they are targeting now, it's a pretty broad range of industries, right? I know that if we were to take a closer look into Labyrinth Klima, we've seen them targeting not only, you know, the financial sector, but we've seen them targeting military or, you know, very opportunistic when it comes to defense, or we've seen them hit healthcare, aerospace, you know, industrials and so forth. Where's the major focus for them, you think? Well, let's maybe take a big step back for a second and take a look at the kind of broad policies and and politics of North Korea. For those of you that aren't familiar with that, I won't do it too deep of a dive here, but North Korea obviously was kind of the formulation that, that occurred at the end of the Korean conflict. And the northern part of Korea was the one that was kind of driven by Marxist ideology and socialist ideology. And not long after the formulation of North Korea, they kind of defined this idea that they call Juche or Juche, or I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, sorry. But this is really the ideology of the Workers' Party of Korea. And this has subcomponents to it. And one of the ones that most people will be familiar with is Sangun, which is kind of the military first ideology and was one of the major national policies that they've implemented and so as we kind of look at their mentality and their ideology, I think it was, you know, largely a Marxist kind of society that was meant to be this kind of socialist haven and really everybody would kind of benefit from the state. But they recognized that they were immediately still in conflict and, you know, the Korean War is still 
not over, right? They had an armistice and they drew the parallel and they created this demarcation point. You know, so there's still like a lot of kind of tension in the region. And North Korea really endeavored to focus on the military because their thinking was if they had a strong military, they could protect themselves, they could stand up for themselves, and they can allow their fledgling society to really prosper. And it, you know, they they ran into some troubles uh, over the years with various crop problems and, and things like that. So a lot of that kind of mentality, that military first, that kind of broader policy was predominant for North Korea up until about 2015, 2016. And there was this kind of concept of the National Economic Development Strategy, which really looked at six different core areas that they needed to improve. And that would improve the lives of North Koreans. So power being one of those things, as I said, reliable power, not readily available. Uh, Agriculture, they're constantly struggling with being able to, to generate enough food, particularly in the form of agriculture products that they grow. They've had another area that was focused was land reclamation, heavy equipment. There's a lot of mining that occurs there. So mining is another thing that was on that list and international relations and trade. So with those six things being highlighted, this national economic development strategy plan really kind of was meant to make everybody's lives a little bit better there. And I think improve the economy because I think Kim Jong-un realizes that you know, at some point you need to show some progress and give people uh, a little bit more than they had in order to maintain that that balance of power that, that he has. And, you know, I mentioned earlier the, the cult of personality, but, you know, you look at what the belief is and how the stories of Kim Jong-un and all of the various, you know, elements or, or people that have led the country there's a lot to unpack. Let's put it that way. But all of that and this led to this NEDS program or strategy that came out. And with that, we started to see an uptick in, and this is when kind of we saw the transition from a lot of the disruptive, destructive attacks that were occurring from a cyber perspective out of North Korea and started seeing a shift into more of the financial revenue generation by targeting the financial systems and NFTs and cryptocurrency and fintech type companies, but also economic espionage. We've seen Vietnam do this as well, where they've kind of taken this China model of let's steal what is currently state of the art and try to Mm -hmm. innovate on top of that and bring it into our, our own market, right? They, they recognize that they want to do it themselves. Now, I think North Korea's reasoning for that is probably a little bit less ambitious than, uh, let's say, Vietnam or China. But there's definitely, you know, they recognize that they, they have some changes that they want to make. And so we've seen an uptick in economic espionage. So coming back yeah. to your Labyrinth Chalima question, you know, I, th- I think let's, we could go through the various Chalimas, you know, real quick, but Labyrinth Chalima is one of the ones who is frequently associated with some of the espionage and some of the, obviously, you know, you could see their progression from the Sony attack in 2014 to the 2017 WannaCry ransomware and into some of the, now what we see this kind of dual mission of currency theft and also the funding uh, R&D. R&D for like their nuclear program and, and WMD programs, right? Yeah. And by the way, just for the listeners that are wondering why I'm saying Kalima and Adam is saying Chalima, it is a tomato type thing. I I am a rebel. And so, so that's my answer to that. I feel like I got yelled at by our North Korean team for saying 
What okay, Kalima. is it is the right way? I think it's Chalima. Yeah. Is it? I don't know. I, I keep know. saying Kalima. You do you. As long as you do it with auto tune, nobody's gonna complain. <laughs> well, now I have to try it. Is it Labyrinth Kalima or Chalima? I don't know. All right. Okay, so Labyrinth, Kalima, Chalima, we're going to figure that one out. They, again, very much focused on, you know, helping fund various state projects, nuclear programs, weapons programs. But then you said, you know, there are other adversaries tied to North Korea. So there's Stardust, Ricochet, there's Silent. Um, Chalima is typically associated with more of the economic espionage stuff as of late. We've seen them kind of targeting energy sector and agriculture and things like that pretty heavily. So that's that's kind of, I, I think, where I would think about silent as being more of the economic espionage. Labyrinth is kind of dual purpose. And a lot of people will kind of argue that Labyrinth and Stardust are one actor. We think that, you know, we track them both separately. We've seen kind of unique tooling and unique things with both, but they do have some shared tools and some some similar tactics and techniques and procedures that they follow but, you know, I think what we've seen is that they're likely associated with Bureau 121 of the, the RGB, the Reconnaissance General Bureau. And so they're kind of a little bit more multi-purpose than, say, Stardust. Interesting. Yeah. So I've seen Stardust targeting, for the most part, a smaller set of verticals yeah. based upon a CrowdStrike reporting. So that includes, you know, to your point, cryptocurrency, technology, hospitality, financial services, unlike Labyrinth Kalima that has you know, probably about a dozen additional uh, industries that, that we've seen activity with them. Yeah. And well, I mean, we could split hairs about with others in the industry about Stardust versus Labyrinth and if it's one or two or whatever. But at the end of the day, I, I think we've seen both are, are kind of separate threads. And I don't know, maybe one day when the world is completely at peace, we'll be able to sit down with the, the folks, you know, post uh, Cold War, we'll be able to sit down with the folks from the RGB and, and say, what was really going on behind the scenes? Sure. There, you know, that would be, yeah. that would be cool. Maybe, maybe Dennis Rodman could help. You know. Ambassador Rodman. <laughs> Ambassador Rodman can help with that conversation. I'm probably going to get a lot of Dennis Rodman hate mail now. Him or from people that are fans of him. <laughs> probably both. I'm assuming we'll get him Dennis on the Rodman podcast. Listens. Dennis, exactly. Dennis can join us. We'll, we'll have a good talk. I'd like to hear about, you know, watching basketball, Kim Jong-un. And then the, yeah. the, the one we had, the two we haven't really spoken about is uh, Velvet and uh, Ricochet. So yeah, so the Velvet is oftentimes referred to as Coney out there. There's a whole bunch of different names for that group, but they tend to target a lot of the NGOs think tanks and academia. And that's largely related to Intel collection that is associated with Velvet Chalima. Wasn't Velvet also responsible for that that power plant attack? Uh, the, uh, the Korean nuclear the power hydro plant. plant. Yeah, the hydro exactly. nuclear plant. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was several years ago. It was December of 2014 because 2014, it was right. first Thanksgiving that year was was completely ruined by reverse engineering the wiper from the, the, the aforementioned Sony hack. And then in December, I remember it was Christmas Eve. I was reverse engineering the uh, the wiper from that with a couple of our analysts. So, oh, yeah. wow. Okay. It was a fun so time. Yeah, fun time. They're clearly not fans of American holidays. It's funny you mentioned this. There's a lot of symbolism that we've found in some of their malware where they'll leave dates specifically like kind of referenced in there. Lots of threat actors leave little love notes for reverse engineers and folks who might be engaged in, in analyzing the tools. And, and so they like to leave these little breads in there. Oh, interesting. Almost like, like a skater 
and some graffiti, right? So it's putting a little tag every now and then. And then Ricochet was the other one you mentioned. And so Ricochet has been really focused. They're similar to Velvet, but they tend to focus more on ROK targets, so South Korean targets, and they tend to have a little bit of a higher level of skill. Mm-hmm. So we think that they're actually one of the more technically advanced adversaries that we track out of DPRK. You know, certainly we've seen them deploy lots of interesting Android malware. They actually, one of my favorite Android malware stories was that they had this, there's a religion is a kind of an issue that kind of pops up a lot of missionary activity between folks trying to bring religion into North Korea. And so we've seen Ricochet, for example, leverage kind of fake religious news and type applications to try to target folks that that might be trying to bring religion into North Korea. And so there was just one application where it was there was like a, a video that would pop up and, but first it would ask for permissions, right? Like trying to, this app needs this permission and the permission it asked for, this is the first time I had seen this was accessibility mode. And so oh, wow. it, okay. you know, if you're using the app, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound nefarious. It's not trying to get my contacts or my, <laughs> any of my other stuff. It's just accessibility mode. Sure. I'll enable that. And then a video would pop up. And what it was using accessibility mode for in the background was to then turn on all the other permissions while you were watching this video. Wow. Yeah, it was super cool. It's, yeah, it's so, almost like a mobile iteration of the on-screen keyboard hack. Yeah, exactly. Except for you don't see the keyboard. Exactly. <laughs> you see a video. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. I feel like we could talk about this for another couple hours. So, But obviously timing is of the essence here. And we have lots of really great reporting that's on our blog. And actually, if you are a subscriber of our high fidelity intelligence reporting that comes out of our CAO organization, there's a lot more details around the tradecraft and the tooling that these various Kalima slash Chilima groups have been leveraging in their campaign. So Adam, maybe for our listeners, give me an overview of where you think North Korea is headed. I know there's a lot of news coming out with, again, you know, their affiliation and negotiations and strategy with Russia. We're talking about arms, potential negotiations that are happening. And so for our listeners that may think that, hey, I may be in a very specific vertical that shouldn't be necessarily impacted by, you know, a nation state like North Korea, you know, where do you think this program is evolving to on on North Korea's ability to be so prolific within their cybersecurity warfare and, and their campaigns? Well, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to look at there. So certainly there is the broader kind of reunification concept, right, between the, the North and the South. And I think that at any given time, the geopolitics between South Korea and North Korea can change. We've seen that over the last couple of administrations, both here in the U.S. and also in South Korea, where they've taken different tacks, different approaches to dealing with North Korea. That said, North Korea likes to provocate countries like Japan by firing missiles into the Sea of Japan and over Japan. They like to also, you know, continue to, I think, to develop their own economy. That That's a factor of something that they're going to have to do is to develop that economy. COVID has been an interesting aspect for North Korea as well. I think they announced that they were removing the some of the pandemic-related restrictions that they had put in place for for North Korea. They've also, you know, continued to work on generating revenue by all of the means that I mentioned earlier and uh, certainly with trade with China. And so U.S.-China policy is a factor as well with what happens with North Korea. And certainly we have, you know, the Russia aspect as well. I don't want to make any major predictions here because I always find that, you know, expect the unexpected. But I think that it's clear that they have at least five different components that we track that have mm. varying degrees of capabilities. And right now their focus is on revenue generation and espionage that could flip at any given 
time based on geopolitics and it could go back to disruptive, destructive attacks. And so that's something that we need to be prepared for. But they're up leveling. I mean, we've seen, you know, a supply chain attack within a supply chain attack was the last big thing, right? They had conducted a supply chain attack inside of a some sort of a trading application. And then that was deployed inside of a VOIP provider. And then that VOIP provider was used to target downstream customers. And so, you know, I think that they are really, you know, there's two aspects to cyber operations. There's the technical sophistication and maturity, and there's also the operational sophistication and maturity. And oftentimes, you know, people in the tech world kind of misunderstand the importance of the operational complexity and they really focus on the technical complexity. Yeah. So like the tool itself versus how it's being delivered yep. or like the longer term impact. Right. Yep. And North Korea threat actors have demonstrated capabilities for both. And so yeah. that's what makes them such a formidable adversary and, and why we need to keep a very close eye on, on what happens both geopolitically on all things related to that, but also understanding what's going on from from an economic perspective within North Korea, because that will drive some of those operations. So, you know, one of the areas that I always like to call attention to is things like digital agriculture, right? A lot of folks don't think that that's something that's particularly sexy or interesting, but for a country like North Korea that's struggling to put food out to the people every year, digital agriculture can be a huge differentiator for you know, feast or famine. Oh, wow. In the literal sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah interesting. So for our listeners, uh, if you're listening to this and this, you know, creates any type of concern or you're assessing whether or not you've been impacted by a potential attack, or if you'd like, again, some more information on some of the trade craft that we've been observing coming out of North Korea, again, reach out. We'll have some contact information in the show notes as always. And we have some really great resources, not only on our website, but your local teams, you know, can provide you with some some really great reports that we published in both our Global Threat Report earlier this year and also our recent threat hunting report that was provided by the CA, a team which is actually led by Adam. And that actually was a, a culmination of two amazing teams here at CrowdStrike, our intelligence arm, for our threat hunting slash Overwatch team. I think knowing more of these adversaries, you know, what their objectives are and how they move throughout your environment and what their intentions are is only going to help you as a defender understand how to, you know, put up a multitude of guardrails for both visibility and mitigating against these threats as quickly as possible. And so it's not a sales pitch. We won't get into pushing products or anything like that. But, you know, the more you know, right, the better you can prepare yourself to deal with some of the bad things that we're observing. And on that note, let me give a a quick shout out for if anybody wants to kind of keep abreast of the issues related to DPRK and what's going on, kind of the latest news. Let me give a shout out to my friends over at 38 North who have fantastic content and uh, I'm a big fan of reading all of their posts and uh, they've got this uh, this fun little section they do where they have a, a bit of a fictional narrative between a, a US diplomat and a North Korean diplomat and it's uh, it's fun to read as well so a uh, big shout out to 38 Okay 38 North All right sorry All right so folks again we really appreciate the listeners, the feedback. Some folks have been reaching out again over LinkedIn and a few other emails that I've gotten. Just give it some really great feedback. We will have a lot more content coming out in some future episodes. Again, this is the Adversary Universe podcast with Mr. Adam Myers. I'm Christian Rodriguez. Thank you so much. We're going to catch you on the next side. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.